You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating. I'm your host, Rachel Heinemann, licensed mental health counselor. Each week, we explore the deeper meaning of our relationship with food and our body. I interview experts in the field of eating disorders and psychoanalysis to bring you the answers about why you do the things you do and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. All right, let's get started. Hey guys, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. If you're not new, welcome back. I love that you've returned. I wanted to take a second to share an opportunity with you and invite you to join my weekly newsletter. So the newsletter goes out every Thursday and I share extra information that isn't anywhere, not the podcast, not Instagram. I share journal prompts or just spacing out prompts and some food for thought. You'll also have the opportunity to respond directly to me. So we take this conversation away from being one-sided and we can have this together. I can't wait to see you in your inbox. This week's episode, episode 36, is with Jack Heinemann, LCSWR, who is an analytic psychotherapist and also happens to be my husband. So the conversation is obviously going to be fun. For all of us, we try to keep it professional because, you know, we're talking about professional stuff, but, you know, (laughs) gives you a little bit of a glimpse into my personal life and some of the things that we nerd out on. So a little bit about Jack. Jack works in private practice and NYU as a clinical social worker, and he is a psychoanalyst. So he trained at Training Institute for Mental Health does supervision, group supervision, individual supervision, et cetera, all the things. He's a pretty cool guy. I'm not going to lie. And I'm definitely not biased. This conversation is really important because it goes behind the scenes into what's actually important in the process of therapy, the process of self-growth, and thinking about things in a much more nuanced way. So it's not just about, oh, I come to therapy or I'm on this self-growth journey to heal my depression or my relationship with food or whatever it might be. This is a journey. This is something that isn't just about three things to fix your anxiety. This is about something that's so much deeper. And Jack has this knack for breaking things down in such a simple way. He's (laughs) my go-to person when I prepare for presentations This one, I'm actually really excited to share with you. I know it's every single week, but this one, I'm really excited. So let's just jump right in. Hi, Jack. Nice to meet you. (laughs) Hi, Rochelle. It's nice to meet you too. I'm glad we got some time scheduled into our uh, very busy calendar. Yeah. This was the only way I was going to get to talk to you. Well, your people contacted my people and we found the time that worked. So thanks for being so flexible. <laughs> all right. We have 30 minutes, so let's get it all in. All right. Why don't you introduce yourself? Who are you? Well, first and foremost, I'm Jack Heineman and I am Rachel's husband. Really? Proud husband. Yes. Wow. I also happen to be a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. I work in community health in Brooklyn, New York, and I also have a private practice. I'm also in Brooklyn, New York. So you're also a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. I'm also a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. What is your home like? That's an interesting question. You should ask my wife about that. (laughs) Oh, God. You know, the question that we always get is like, do you 
analyze each other at home. What does your dinners look like? First of all, do we actually sit down and eat dinner? That's questionable. But no, we actually do that. But no, we don't analyze anyone, not ourselves, not other people. Ain't nobody got time for that. That's right. No, we don't analyze anyone. We talk about our days, you know, the normal frustrations of our days. We don't need to talk about analyzing people because that's what we do for a living. Exactly. So let's talk about process because very often we use that term. Not you and I, we don't use such big terms at home. Actually, that reminds me, one thing that I actually hate, you know this, is that every time you say something that I don't understand, which is unfortunately quite often, you don't explain it to me. You ask Alexa or Siri to explain it. I hate that. (laughs) That's true. That's true. They just do a better job explaining it than I could. So I just do it that way. All right. This one you're not going to get out of. So very often we talk about, well, I guess I talk about process. So it's process-oriented therapy. It's a process, processing emotions, all that stuff. And it sort of seems like a very vague term or a way to describe what I'm thinking in my brain. So when you say process or when you think process, how would you describe what that means if somebody sort of has no idea? I think the best synonym for the process I'm speaking about is the word journey. Where we're traveling somewhere and we don't specifically know the destination or what the destination will look like. Think about an explorer, you know, leaving, uh, leaving old Europe to find the new world, not knowing exactly what he or she might find. But you know that you're heading in a specific direction to an unknown destination. And you know that you need to follow certain rules, do certain things in order to get where you'd like to go, even if the destination is not necessarily clearly defined. So you're saying, let's just use it in the context of process-oriented therapy. It's not necessarily that the ultimate goal is, I won't feel depressed anymore, or I'll stop being anxious, which is a nice goal. But we sort of have that in the back of our minds that we're headed in that direction. But the purpose of the journey of therapy is in the journey as opposed to a means to an end. That's right. That's right. So unlike a lot of the things we do in our culture, in our society, therapy in and of itself is not really a means to an end. It's a process within itself or a journey within itself that holds value beyond some tangible goal that we may want to reach. So for example, someone comes in for therapy and they feel very anxious. Of course, we want the person to feel less anxious. And of course, we want to mitigate the things that are causing them to feel so anxious. But that doesn't mean that everything we're doing is for the express purpose of diminishing anxiety. We just know that by the end of the process, hopefully the person we're working with will feel less anxious. And almost all the time, that is exactly what happens. Because as it turns out, the things that people tend to think they feel anxious or distressed or upset by are not necessarily the things that are causing them to feel anxious or distressed by those things. And I know that sounds a bit convoluted, but we can get into that as we go. Can we get into it now? Yeah, we can get into it now. What does that look like? I come to you, hey, Jack, I feel really anxious about my job. My boss is always down my back and not able to to do my work properly. Can you fix me? Yeah. So you're asking me what it is about those things that you can't define the anxiety by those specific issues that the person is bringing up? Well, I'm saying, let's say if I'm that person and I'm saying I feel anxious specifically about work. How do you conceptualize things that might be maybe a little different? Right. So on the surface level, when someone comes in and says that their work is causing them stress or distress, 
there's probably a very, very uh, important amount of truth to that, that something's happening at work that's upsetting them or causing them to be anxious. But in all likelihood, some of the choices that led the person to be in that position or the specific kinds of responses that they're having to the stressful things at work that are causing them to feel anxious and distressed, those might really run a little deeper than, than our parents. And that even though to the outside observer, it seems pretty obvious, well, if your boss is nice to you, of course, you're going to be upset about it. And that's true. And I think we can all empathize with that. It doesn't necessarily mean that the anxious response that someone is having is a direct result of the specific thing that they don't like. You know, I, I think we live in a society where being in control and having perfect internal balance is really, really prioritized and valued. And I think that what happens is sometimes we have things go on in our lives that cause us to be upset and unhappy. And we assume that there's something wrong with the way we're reacting because we're supposed to always be kind of balanced and calm and sort of happy. And that may not really be realistic. That isn't necessarily how life works. Having said that, sometimes when we have a mental health problem, we may be feeling disproportionately anxious and disproportionately upset and depressed about something that's going on. Even though I think it's important to keep in mind that the thing that's really bothering us is also real. So there's this kind of parallel experience where something is upsetting to us and we feel anxious and depressed about it, let's say. But there seems to be some other layer to our experience that maybe we're not totally aware of that seems to be outside of our conscious control. That's mm -hmm. where therapy comes in. However, unlike the issue with your boss, let's say your boss has been yelling at you a lot. So there, there could be a kind of concrete solution. Let's work on creating better boundaries between you and your boss or find a different job. There's a more process-oriented question. How is it that I feel so anxious when my boss yells at me? How is it that I feel this disproportionate amount of upset feelings when something bad happens to me? And that's not the kind of thing that we can work on in a kind of cookbook manner, mm -hmm. the way maybe you can deal with concrete problems. Right. And also what stops you from being assertive in a way that feels like you want to and need to, just something blocks you. And so what's behind that as well? This sort of makes me think of the way I talk about eating disorders very often is that, yes, eating disorders are a big problem. And there's a lot of nutritional stuff going on and there's a lot of anxiety around food. But at a certain point, it's not about the food. It's about the mechanisms and the function, the purpose that the eating disorder is serving. And that stems from childhood a long time ago, the significant relationships and experiences that we've had that we've internalized. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm glad you're bringing that up because as it turns out, when something is going on in our lives, it's the broader context of our experiences that really make the difference. We probably haven't gotten to where we got if we're in our 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s. We haven't gotten there without the context of our life experiences, which by the way, have been a kind of process. Right? You're on a kind of journey in your life. There's nothing specific you can necessarily point to that got you to exactly where you are. It was the confluence of a several complex factors together that got us there. Therapy serves to unravel some of those complex processes to help us understand why we're struggling. But that's why it's a process-oriented task. And that's why also it's not necessarily a quick task, much mm -hmm. as we might wish it could be. Right. So the question of, all right, how long is this going to take me? What's the answer? Yeah, if I had a dime for every time someone asked me that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that the first thing is that I think it's important we sympathize um, and empathize with people who want to get feel better, who wants to be upset and anxious, who wants to feel depressed. I mean, the fact that I think that they're reaching out to us is already important, and I think we, they should be 
I think say that takes courage and I think that should really be applauded. But then the question is, what's the question behind the question, right? That's how therapists yep. think about these things. What's the question behind the question? Is the question, are you going to be able to help me? Is the question, am I going to have to suffer for a really long time? I really don't want to. Or is the question, are you going to ask me to do something that's uncomfortable? And I'm not sure I'm willing to do that because I sort of know that the uncomfortable things take time. So trying to figure out what their question is, which one of those three, or maybe something else is going to be the way that you respond to a question like that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if I can understand the intention behind the question, I can try to address, let's say, anxiety that's fueling the question. It's also a legitimate question, I think, of financial nature. People want to know how long they're going to spend money for to get better. And I think that's reasonable. And we should be honest about that. Yeah. So I don't want to mention the childhood experience as significant relationships before. Maybe can you expand on that a little bit more, how you use that? in informing your work? Yeah. Well, the first thing is that, you know, when I talk with people, I think it's very important to get something of their narrative and their story, to get a more complete picture of what's been going on in their lives. And sometimes people are surprised that I want to know about the relationship with their parents and their siblings when they were kids. Sometimes they're surprised by that. And sometimes they say something along the lines of, well, everything was really fine as a kid. I had a really great relationship. Uh And then I may... (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And then I may ask them something like, so what was it like with your mom? They they may say something like, well, my mom didn't really have much to do with me as a kid, or my mom was really busy all the time and felt angry a lot. And I think the person who's saying that things were fine doesn't mean to deny that they had trouble with their mom. They may really not have thought about it for a while, right? And that's a kind of motivated non-thinking, right? There may be a reason the person doesn't want to think about that kind of thing. It can be threatening. So that's part of my job. My job is to help them unravel that a bit and understand that a bit, because That's another part of the complex process that'll help them to gain a little bit of the control that they wish they had. So talk a little bit more about narrative. What do you mean by that? Their story, their narrative, how does that affect someone in their life today? I think that the way we experience the world is really contingent upon our need for a sense of continuity. In order for us to really feel that we're here, we exist, our life has some meaning, we have to feel that we have been a part of a kind of continuous narrative or story of our own lives, right? And even though in the moment, we may not be thinking about something that happened 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, it is still in the back of our minds in an unconscious way, in a non-conscious way. We are still thinking about ourselves in terms of a longer process of where our life has been and where our life is going. And sometimes it's very important to ask someone, open up a little bit about what their experience has been like and to start to become more aware of how what's happening now is part of that important long-term context. Narrative is what gives us a sense of continuity and belonging in the world. And narrative is the way we experience the world, which is why movies, TV shows, books, usually follow a narrative. We use chronology, we use time to make sense of what's happening to us. So to start that process of getting a broader view of the broader context of our lives, we need to start to build a narrative and become aware of that narrative that's already there anyway. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're saying we're almost invested in maintaining the narrative that we've already created. Yeah, I think so. And I think that in certain ways, we're not, we're not even sure what that narrative is and how sometimes right. that narrative has been colored or been interpreted in specific ways because of our interactions. So like, for example, this may be something we can relate to. How many of us have felt like imposters at work? How many of us felt like, you know, we're not really, uh, we're not the real deal? Why is it that we have that feeling? It's because there's a part of us that still feels that we're children. Just because we're no longer children physically 
doesn't mean that psychologically and emotionally, we still hold on to that experience. We go to work and we go, wow, I'm like 10 years old. How is it that I'm doing this job? This makes no sense. This is what my father does. This is what my mother does. Reminds me of that movie. I have no idea what it's called about a kid who gets put in an adult body and then he's, uh, or is it vice versa? And he's making video games. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, but um, is it a Tom Hanks movie? Maybe. I think it's a Tom Hanks movie. I don't know, but that's, yeah, but that's exactly what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. So you're saying that even though we're all grown up, sometimes it doesn't feel like it, which is sort of why when people say, oh, it's my 50th birthday, (laughs) I feel like I'm 20 because you do. Right. And then sometimes that's maybe not to our advantage. Right. And in a sense, we are 20 when we're 50 and we're also 25 and we're also 12. Really, you know, that's part of our narrative. Mm -hmm. It's part of our, part of our sense of continuity. And these kinds of things affect us. And now the question is, what happens when in that course of our narrative, something happened that was really very upsetting or traumatic and mm-hmm. overwhelming? And by traumatic, I don't mean that we didn't like it. By traumatic, I mean it was emotionally overwhelming for us in a very painful way that we don't forget and that we don't easily get over, especially if it happens repeatedly, right? So if someone who's, let's say, a victim of physical abuse and finds themselves feeling scared whenever they're in conflict with an authority and may even sometimes flinch physically, right? There's something that happened in the broader context of the person's life that they are carrying with them into their daily life. And then the anxiety they feel might seem to them to be random in the moment. It actually makes perfect sense in the broader context of their experience. And so you might ask me, what difference does it make? Okay, so now we know that. So what? What difference does it make if I know that somewhere along the narrative of my life, somewhere along the continuous story of my life, something upsetting happened? Why should that make a difference? You made a good point there. Maybe knowledge and information and insight itself isn't enough, but the repeated practice of talking about it and coming to understand it better and starting to make changes in your life because of the way that information affects you does start to have an effect, does start to have a way, does start to get a little better. It starts to mitigate the feeling you have because you can gain some mastery over it. And you may realize that there are certain things you've been doing that you were not aware of that were affected by what you went through. So sometimes that information really can be very useful, especially after repeated practicing, practicing with talking about it and practicing with trying to make changes in your life. So let me make sure I understand this. You're saying that there's a lot of uncovering insight and making oneself aware of what's going on under the surface based on their narrative, if you will. And the knowledge itself sometimes is enough and other times is not. When it's not, then you fill in these pieces. What happens? So, okay, I'm aware of this. And how do I actually make change then if the change isn't happening organically? Sometimes knowledge itself is not enough, even after what I'm calling practicing or a kind of repetition of understanding and acknowledging. Sometimes it's not enough. And the reason for that is, you know, as we know, trauma can be encoded in our bodies. It's encoded in parts of the brain that maybe evolved a little later, excuse me, evolved a little earlier, and that we don't have the same conscious access to as we do with some other things. But in that case, there's another issue of process that comes up in therapy that accounts for how that gets better. And that is, there's a trusting relationship, hopefully, between Mm -hmm. you and your therapist. And within the context of a trusting and safe relationship, the way we are hardwired is that in a place of safety and trust, we feel a lot more willing to take certain kinds of risks even in the outside world, not just in the therapy room, but that someone's coming in for therapy, they started to feel heard, understood, they started to make, you know, connect some dots and feel good about themselves, started to trust the therapist, and they know they can go out in the world and try new things, 
and then talk about it when they come back. Or if something upsetting happens, the therapist will be there with them to support them and to help them talk them through it. And that gives them the opportunity to try new things. And the trying new thing is a different kind of practicing. It's a practicing in the real world that gives people a chance to gain some mastery over the thing that before, that up until this point was really very upsetting for them. So it's like a home base, a safety, if you will, that allows them to do things that maybe they didn't feel safe enough to do. Kind of like, you know, when we're little kids, we played tag or whatever the game was, but there was always a base. If you touch the tree, you're not allowed to be it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Home base, sure. If you touch base, you can't get tagged. Or uh, for Tap Tap Trio, I guess you're off the hook, but you've touched base. Yeah. Yeah. I lost every time. That was a terrible game. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's an interesting metaphor because when we think about our attachments to other people, especially in childhood, we think about parents as a secure base. If parents provide a kind of secure base to children, children feel safe not only to be with their parents, but they feel safe to go out and venture into the world because they know they've got a security mm. to which to return. Therapy functions in a very similar way. Because oh, as I said, the part of us that's still a child is still coming to therapy with you, even though you're 37. And that part of you still needs that secure base, no matter how old and how mature and how smart and how achieved and how accomplished you are. So say someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I guess some of this is making sense. I'd like to incorporate this into therapy, or maybe I'm thinking of starting therapy. What are some things that they should know? I think it's important for people to know that they're embarking on something that may not have, as we said, may not have a discrete ending and a discrete goal that they're trying to achieve. But having said that, there are ways that I think as patients you can open yourself up to the process so that it works for you. And part of that is, is knowing that you're coming in for a sort of open-ended discussion about things in your life. And that on the one hand, you have a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom because you get to decide what you talk about. And your therapist is there to listen to you and to elicit things from you that are very important that you may not even realize have been important for you for a long time. And on the other hand, it also requires a certain kind of trust to be led. You know, it's kind of like dancing a bit. Something I know a lot about, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) You suck at dancing. Thank you. Thank you. But I'm open to the process of receiving feedback about my dancing. But you're an incredible singer, so that we can give you points for. Thank you. Would you like to do a rendition of my way? Of course. Oh, definitely. (laughs) You know, Frank and I are good friends. (laughs) In any case, it's kind of like dancing. Someone, you may be holding someone's hand. They sort of lead you but not in an explicit way. They just sort of, you sort of follow them. You sort of know intuitively where to go. And therapy is similar. On the one hand, you need to be open to being led. Let the therapist ask certain questions, at least in the beginning. See if you can engage in the process of free association, which is just a fancy way of saying, speak about anything that happens to be on your mind without filtering it and allow your thoughts to take you wherever your mind really needs you to go. And in that sense, you open yourself up to the process. But even in doing that, I think it's important for us to acknowledge as therapists and, you know, in our roles, maybe in our own training and in getting analysis and in being patients ourselves, it's important for us to know that that is also taking a leap. That there is a leap of faith involved in opening oneself up to someone, a therapist who's usually a stranger to the person. The therapist's job is to help you feel comfortable, you know, and it may take some time, but eventually, eventually the ideal is that you're able to speak openly with your therapist in a way that allows you to feel a sense of trust. But sometimes things get in the way. Sometimes this kind of thing, opening yourself up and trusting a therapist, sometimes things get in the way of that. And maybe there are certain things we can see, red flags that come up. So one of those red flags that I've noticed for sure 
is when as a therapist, you start to realize that dialogue is starting to die down. What I mean by that is that it's turning into a kind of monologue or a staccato conversation with yes and yes and no short answers, or if someone's talking at very great length and doesn't really want to hear feedback, or as the patient or the therapist, one or the other is getting interrupted a lot, or doing a lot of interrupting, something is happening where the process is not unfolding as it should. Because a natural process would really be where there's, like I said, this kind of dance of one person speaking, the other person speaking, one person leading, the other person leading, until you get to a point of mutual interest, a point of emotional urgency that needs to be elaborated on. Does that make sense? Well, are you saying that if, let's say, I'm your patient and I'm either talking the entire time, not letting you speak at all, or you're asking a question and I'm saying yes or no, not elaborating, then there's something stunted about that. That's not really allowing the, quote, process to unfold. That's exactly right. It would be the same thing as if you're dancing with someone and they take one step and they don't take the second step unless you give them a little poke in the side. That won't really work for a dance. You have to sort of go along with the flow of the music and go along with the rhythm. And I suppose the question that I ask myself as a therapist is why is it or how is it that this person is having some trouble with this process? How is it or why is it that they need to interrupt me this way? What is at stake for the person I'm speaking with that's making it so hard for them to engage in this process and trust that I'm not going to lead them somewhere dangerous? So let me backtrack. Say I'm just starting out. I sort of trying to take what you're saying as maybe tips in my mind, coming in, free associating, just like talking about whatever is on my mind, allowing whoever my therapist is to chime in, ask questions. I can elaborate on those answers. I can be curious about some of those questions, but allowing both of us to be in the room. And also this is important for me not to lean on the therapist too much in that they can ask a lot of questions and they can lead in some sort of way, but that there is most of the responsibility is on me for me to be able to open up and share what's going on for me too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And also trusting that if you're having trouble with it, that first of all, that's okay. Because part of the process may be that one day I come in and I don't feel like speaking and I don't feel like talking. And then the nothing, the nothing of silence becomes the something that we can talk yeah. about, that the therapeutic dyad can talk about. Yeah. So What about if I do have a problem, I feel really anxious, or I have this really complicated relationship with food, or I feel depressed, or work is not working out for me, and I do need to address my problem, and you're saying that I just talk about what my mind is thinking, how is that going to help? It sounds outrageous, doesn't it? (laughs) Which is why it's so interesting. You know, I think that coming in blind to this. Let's say it's my first time coming into therapy and I'm not a, you know, I haven't studied psychology and psychoanalysis and I just come in and I'm told, well, just speak about whatever happens to be on your mind and you'll see your anxiety will melt away. I guess there's something preposterous about it. (laughs) Be like, yeah, I'm out. But I guess our friend Ziggy, I guess our friend Sigmund Freud really uh, was onto something (laughs) there. He realized that talking about the thing itself isn't always so helpful. Sometimes just talking is helpful Mm. because it's interesting how themes emerge because If you remember what I was saying about continuity, if you remember what I was saying about process, it's that if there's anything about us as human beings, it's that we tend to repeat the same things and that we tend to try to fit our lives into a kind of narrative. So if something's important to us and it's leading us to feel anxious, it'll come up in almost every conversation we have. That's true. Yeah. No, you can tell what's on someone's mind when they're talking, especially if it's somebody you're around pretty often 
no matter what they're talking about, you can see what's on their mind. I mean, there's a pattern. Yeah. Always. All roads lead back to the thing that's most emotionally urgent to them, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. But we don't obviously analyze anyone ever. No, we don't. We don't. But that's the great thing about just being painfully blunt with each other, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you think makes it so difficult for people to do this? I think fundamentally, as human beings, we're sort of scared of knowing things that we don't want to know because there must be a reason we don't know them in the first place. Right? If there's something that keeps coming up in psychotherapy and there are themes that keep emerging with all people, right? Because anxieties tend to follow certain patterns, right? There are certain ideas as psychoanalysts that we get trained in and understanding anxiety and depression and trauma, those types of things. How is it that so many of us don't know these things? It's because there's a kind of motivated unknowing a part of us that really needs to not know because otherwise we can't really live our daily lives. And so uncovering those things can feel threatening sometimes, especially if they're associated with very painful feelings. And so it's the job of the therapist to create a safe space to talk about those things and to uncover them in a way that's not going to be traumatic or re-traumatizing. Yeah. So maybe a little bit in summary, the idea of symptom relief is not necessarily the best goal to come in with. It's more so about the ability to be more curious about oneself and one's process that allows for hopefully the symptom relief, but more than you can ever imagine. I'm actually thinking of a session I had a couple of weeks ago where there was a patient who said something like, my life is so much more fulfilling. And that was something that I never even dreamed I could have. Mm, wow. Yeah. That's cool. You should tell that story at the dinner table sometime. <laughs> Who's going to make dinner? Oh, that's a good point. I think we should Uber Eats. Um, I like your food better. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. Well, you know. But you were asking me, you were asking me about people having different kinds of changes and not focusing on symptom relief. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you say that because the very thing that motivates us to come in for therapy, which is to get some relief from something that's bothering us, is the thing that we can't really focus on in the foreground all the time if we want to get anywhere with overcoming the symptom, which sounds like a bit of an internal contradiction. And that is confusing at first, I think, until you have the experience of talking about things and realizing how our anxieties are really tangled up in other parts of our lives that are really emerging as very important for us when we talk about things in our conversations. Not to put you on the spot, but I was wondering if you can give not a robust example. We don't have enough time for that. Maybe a later date, but some sort of example to understand how the symptom relief is not necessarily where it's at, that the information is more so buried unconsciously. So I'm thinking of somebody who comes in and they are telling me they're having some trouble, you know, asserting themselves with friends and some trouble asserting themselves with colleagues at work. They realize they're getting pushed around. They realize something's happening with their being asked to do things they don't feel comfortable doing. And for some reason, no matter how hard they try, in the moment they feel really worried and anxious and aren't able to set a certain kind of boundary with other people that they'd like to set. And then we can talk about the problem and how they might do it, right? And they sort of have a skill. You know, well, I, I guess I could say, I don't like that, please stop it. Or I'm just, no, I'm not willing to do that. But just having the skill or the information about the skill isn't always enough. But if we allow a process to emerge with free association, talking about things that come to mind about the feelings that come up when these situations happen. What we sometimes find is the person grew up and that they found that whenever they were trying to set boundaries with their parents, 
We were criticized, shamed, maybe they were physically abused. And that anxiety, even though they're no longer in that same situation of danger, that anxiety about in some way being punished or shamed or criticized, the feeling that their parents don't really like them very much when they do the thing, when they set, when they assert themselves and set a boundary, those feelings tend to come to the fore when they're in the current situation, whether it's with a spouse, a friend, or, or at work. Discussing these things as a topic, saying, well, maybe the reason you're having trouble is because you went through something bad in your childhood and that's happening now. It just doesn't seem to have the same effect as someone really thinking things through and talking about their lives in an open way and allowing these things to come up to the surface on their own. There's something about that that's somewhat transformative because links that have been separated start to get connected again. The dots get connected again. And all of a sudden, the person feels a sense of control and a ability to do something new that they had not felt before. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in successions, much as we might wish it does. But over the long term, it really does start to change. So in a way, you're saying that it's not really making the connections in and of itself that's transformative. It's the person making the connections about themselves. Meaning if I have an understanding of what's going on for someone and I can create an entire case formulation on their life and present it to them, it's beautifully written and it has all the connections that they need. Reading it is not going to be that helpful because the information itself doesn't change. It's the creating the links by oneself is what you're saying. That's right. Because it remains in the realm of the intellectual and the abstract, even if we're reading something about ourselves. Sometimes information could be useful, but there's something about going through the process of learning something about ourselves and having a trusted person give us certain kinds of interpretations or descriptions in small doses that we can take in that seems to really make a difference. Just the information laid out for you, not necessarily because we're really invested in doing the same things we've always been doing because they serve an important purpose, which yeah. I think is something that you've talked about a lot when it comes to eating disorders, about the way that the disorder or the behavior serves a certain purpose for the person. And that's not relinquished so easily. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously I have a lot of follow-up questions for you, but we're going to pause for today and go back to our separate offices and not talk to each other till the next recording. Oops. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Rachel. Hope to see you soon. Are you joking? No, I'm, I mean it. You hope to see me soon. I'd like to see you soon. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, thank you so much. I know that you're very busy. <laughs> I know more than anybody that you're very busy. So I appreciate you taking the time. Before I let you go, can you let our listeners know where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here. You can learn more about me at jackheinemantherapy.com. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.